I didn't want anyone else to only be able to hold on to that one representation because no piece of media or project should hold the burden of responsibility for all the stories. Hi, and welcome to Best in Fest, and I'm Leslie Lepage, the director of the La Femme International Film Festival, and this is a podcast for everyone and the people who are interested in advancing their career in television and film and learning the dirty little secrets and what makes Hollywood tick. Oh my goodness. I am super happy to have today Alec Schmitter, who is awesome, I just have to say. Emmy uh, Award winner, Peabody, Critics' Choice Award, recognized film producer and director of transgender representation at GLAAD, which is the nation's leading LGBTQ plus media advocacy organization. But really, what's truly amazing is the producing credits he really brings to the table. Uh, Changing the Game um, on Hulu, Disclosure on Netflix, Framing Agnes, uh, Staying on Board, The Leo Baker Story on Netflix, and um, Chasing Chasing Amy. So we're going to talk about all this, but welcome, Alex. So happy to have you. Thank you so much, Leslie, for having me. I, I mean, I'm a big fan of the show and of you, so I'm thrilled to be here talking about something I know we both love very much, which is film. <laughs> Well, yeah, but, you know, and, and and film and really where diversity finally is opening up, you know, like what a sigh of relief that that things are expanding as opposed to, you know, still contracting. Um, but I want to just start off. How on earth did you get bit with this bug of media producing? I mean, what was that journey for you? It was a little accidental. I mean, when I was growing up in Orange County, California, I didn't know any trans people. And so when I was growing up, the really only sense that I could familiarize or get to know myself through was very limited representation and specifically with the film Boys Don't Cry. I mean, that was the first film that I ever saw a trans man portrayed. And if you've seen the movie, you can imagine that that's not a very hopeful or positive outlook on the experience of being someone who is a trans man or a trans person of any gender. Um, And so that probably delayed my own self-acceptance for about a decade. And it is what I attribute to in my eventual self-acceptance being the reason I wanted to work in media because I also studied in school the effects of media on child development and the way that we see ourselves and each other represented through advertising, through narrative, through documentary, all these different images inform who we are and how we relate to each other. So I sort of just stumbled into, I mean, after coming into myself, uh, media advocacy because I also mention often that I didn't know trans people could have jobs. I never saw that represented in media. And so I thought the only way to have a job was to be an activist. And I always joke that I'm 4'11 and 5'2 on my driver's license. So me being in the streets protesting (laughs) maybe is not my best 
<laughs> contribution. Um, but I do love storytelling. And from a very personal place, I know the life-saving nature of the stories that we see and that they tell us about who we are. So um, found my way to GLAAD, fortunately, and I've been there for years and years. And that's also what led me into producing because so much of the work I do at GLAAD is consulting and advising storytellers on how to tell the most authentic and accurate stories about trans people. And, um, you know, as I was there, my boss, Nick Adams, introduced me to Sam Fader, who was working on Disclosure at the time, the director of Disclosure about the trans history of representation in TV and film. And I said, look, I've never produced anything before, but if you need someone to run around and get you coffee, I'm your guy. And sort of that's le what led me on the producer path, um, which I've learned is a lot about uh, making teams work and identifying different talents and skills that everybody brings to the table so that ultimately the product is as enjoyable and fulfilling as the product. Right. Well, you know, you hit on a lot of subjects. I'm just going to jump back to that iconic film that you, you know, kind of launched with. You know, that was an iconic film. That's on my top 100 films to watch. Every film student should see it. And yes, the ending doesn't, you know, pan out that well, but it's storytelling. And, and, and that was, I think, a first global national touchstone of this topic. Then we kind of went dry for a big chunk of time in the national um, scope. And now, you know, over the last three to five years, things have really started popping again. And, and this topic is now really globally out there. Um, have you found that the storytelling, the authentic storytelling, is less of a challenge now, more of a challenge? Um, are you still coming in with those same struggles? Uh, talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, I think with the case of Boys Don't Cry, it was an important film for a number of reasons. And we can also acknowledge that as culture progresses, as our ability to look at what stories are overrepresented and underrepresented, as we take a sort of an evaluation of that, we can also understand different projects as how they arrive during their time. So what I have seen that is really um, great is that the, the casting conversation is largely settled. You cannot cast a cisgender actor to play a transgender character in the ways that you were allowed to in the past because for a number of reasons, um, but there are limited opportunities for trans actors and talent to play parts at large. And so when there is a trans character, a trans actor should be playing that role. And potentially even more important is that more people believe they've seen a ghost than met a transgender person. And so, <laughs> and, and by the way, that's not true. Trans people are in every community, everywhere, have been forever and ever. But to your point, the visibility has escalated to the point that it's not that trans and non-binary people are anything new. It's this visibility and awareness has escalated to a point that we are experiencing more backlash as a community because of this newfound awareness. 
So I would say that even though the casting conversation is all but settled in a really powerful way, and I'd love to come back to my full circle moment with Hillary Swank, uh, whenever that makes sense. But um, what we are still struggling with, I think, is authenticity behind the scenes. And I'm always advocating for people to be producers in addition to directors, in addition to development executives who are of these communities who have traditionally been misrepresented or underrepresented because there is a disconnect, as I know you know and probably have observed and you do talk about, the disconnect between the film festival circuit and what happens to a film if it doesn't get distribution, if it doesn't get a platform to be seen, it sort of dies on the vine of... A festival circuit, which is amazing, but you're also only reaching the people that are attending those specific festivals and sort of already bought in to that programming. So anyway, I, I just shared a lot. I'll, I will stop now. <laughs> no, 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 no. That 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 that's good because you hit a lot of topics. Um, you know, just speaking on that festival uh, circuit, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, um, you know, we had LGBT plus content out there, but we just didn't see it as, I guess, fine-tuned um, quality level uh, at a distributionable quality level, although there were, of course, exceptions to the rule, and those were the ones that landed in the festival circuit, right? So there's a lot more outlets now for LGBT plus content to get secured off of the festival circuit, whereas 10 years ago, it, it, you know, it really wasn't, right? There was like two distribution companies and that was it. So I think you're right. That's really opened up and allowed that casting conversation to be solved and that, that distribution conversation to be more solved. Um, speaking about, you know, Hillary playing that iconic part that, you know, she did so well with, uh, uh, what was your, what is your feelings, you know, on that? My feelings about the film itself are conflicting and complicated, which I think is okay. And I actually appreciate that we can look at media in a critical and literate way. That's what I hope we can start doing more broadly, because typically things aren't bad or good exclusively. It's not a binary system in a way that we're trying to think more expansively on a spectrum. So for me, it was Hillary Swank portrayed Brandon Tina, a real life trans man who, when his gender history was found out, he was brutally raped and murdered. Like she played Brandon in a way that was of the utmost respect to him and his identity and his experience. And then in her Oscar acceptance speech, references him and references in him in a way that is respectful of who he is. There was no misgendering. There was no treating him as if his identity was somehow made up or not real. And so the way she played him I think made all the difference in the world to how we relate to that film and that character. That being said, there is something to be said about why was that the film 
that everyone latched on to. Um, and Laverne Cox says in Disclosure, you know, when we're constantly seeing trans people under violent attack, that sort of tells trans people what our value is in the world or what we should expect of our lives. And so I think there's some media criticism for all of us to sort of engage in about why do we pick and choose specific stories and, and why do we not pick others? And what does that say mostly about us and not about the piece of media itself? But I, I think the thing that is so powerful and profound to me about that film was that was the film that both told me or allowed me to acknowledge who I was, even though it delayed my own self-acceptance and is sort of the the fire starter to why I got into storytelling in the first place, because I didn't want anyone else to only be able to hold on to that one representation, because no piece of media or project should hold the burden of responsibility for all the stories and all the different community members that are involved. And so when I was screening Changing the Game at Mountain Film, which is one of my all-time favorite film festivals, shout out to Lucy and the team, I we we screened Changing the Game, did a little Q&A, and then after the film, went into the lobby, and I remember seeing a face, and I don't often get speechless, but I went to into physical like paralysis. My I couldn't process what was going on, and it was Hillary Swank, and she came up and thanked me for the film and how moving it was to her and how far we've come. And I was able to share with her, well, I wouldn't be who I am without your art. And so this art is in some ways a result of what you brought and the respect that you um, gave to Brandon and Boys Don't Cry. And so it was one of those moments of just complete affirming nature that I am doing exactly what I should be doing and who I am. And uh, I will never forget it. Um, and we were able to have that really beautiful moment together. Wow. How, how full circle is that? I mean, you know, to have that um, as kind of a button to your pro progress, you know. But interesting that you mentioned um, changing the game because this is a, a huge topic um, in the athletic world. Uh, whether transgender, you know, how do transgender athletes get um, segmented into the sport, and how are they treated, and 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 how do we look at this as you know moving forward into uh, Olympic sports, and and how are they going to handle this as as transgender athletes really start, um, you know making powerful statements. Can you talk about how this film started for you, like the topic? Yeah, let's let's dive into that. I think this is one of my favorite stories to tell because I love acknowledging my own self-growth and evolution. Um, at the time in 2016, I was working at GLAAD and I was approached, basically I got a cold call from director Michael Barnett and producer Claire Tucker, both very well-established, respected filmmakers. I looked into their IMDb credits. I was like, wow, these are really incredible filmmakers. And they brought the concept of, we want to tell a story about trans high school athletes. And my red flags, alert buttons, 
just going off um, because at the time this hadn't reached the the uh, fire level. I'm using the wrong words. The, the Na- fever national, pitch. national, yeah, the fever pitch, the national the level that it is now. That it is now, and that it was sort of escalating and starting around that time. And I really, as they approached me. Number one, I was skeptical because any filmmakers who are coming into a community that they are not a part um, often don't know what that experience is. And therefore, in the storytelling, there are so many opportunities for missteps about what the representation could be, how is everyone being respected and doing this in a responsible way. So even with their credentials and their credits, I was concerned and skeptical. And I also had to look internally at myself because there was a reason that I felt uncomfortable, even as a trans person myself, about why was I having such uncomfortable, like tense reactions to this topic. And in my own self-interrogation, I realized where that was coming from. And it was when you looked out into the media, the only time we hear about trans people in sports is when they're winning. We never hear about when they are just participating along with their peers, which, by the way, is what most kids are doing. Like when we're talking about athletics, there's a difference between Olympic NCAA athletics and child sports, which 90% of kids play. And so I was doing all this work on my own while sort of vetting them, asking them very tough questions, which to their credit, they were willing to engage with me in good faith on all of those and say, we, we know we don't know everything. And that's why we want to bring on uh, a trans person to the team who will be a great producer and collaborator with us. And we met continued having those difficult conversations and it sort of illuminated to the fact that we were all willing to engage with each other and be sensitive and critical and responsible in the telling of these very sensitive stories um, of these young people for who the film lives out in the world and that's going to have a real impact on their lives outside of when it's screening in a theater like this is going to have real impact so that's how we really got going and and it's been a really incredible journey with that film we played it over a hundred film festivals took years to get onto hulu but we are now on hulu and are so grateful for the opportunity to be on that platform but i think the big thing for me in the process is being able to own and take account for what we don't know and what we want to learn more about, but do so in a way that we're not processing in public, we're processing in private and making intentional decisions then about what the storytelling looks like. Because as you said, it is very hot. It's a hot button issue right now about this topic, but truly when we were thinking about it in a critical way that I've had the opportunity and the privilege to process, when we're talking about ex- excluding an entire group of people from something, inevitably that's going to affect more than just that group and community and these notions we have on, in quotations, advantage or in quotations, dominance are really based on sexist and racist notions about who gets to be a girl, 
who gets to be a woman? What is masculine? What is feminine? And ultimately what we've seen in these attacks on trans kids is that the, it's a slippery slope. More and more people who don't perfectly conform to those expectations are going to be regulated and policed in ways that we see in all sorts of ways with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is all coming from the same place. Right. And there's a lot going on. I mean, there are lawsuits and um, people fighting states and federal uh, legislation on allowing uh, children to make the choice of transgender choices uh, prior to 18, right? Younger uh, than 18. And, and, and that also can affect if they're athletes, you know, on, on what the, that sport is all about. Well, and real quick, real quick on that, Leslie, is you said transgender choices. So I want to make very clear for anyone listening and anyone who is hearing about all these lawsuits that people develop their gender identity usually very early on. We develop a concept of that as soon as we really have consciousness of self. And so... When we're talking about healthcare, when we're talking about the ability for kids to be kids, it, it's really like all of the major medical associations agree that like healthcare for trans kids and, and allowing them to feel um, congruent in their bodies and aligned in who they are, like there's no uh, permanent change or process that's happening before the age of 18. And it's happening alongside parents who know that their children otherwise may not want to stay alive because the intensity of that feeling of dysphoria and misalignment is so intense that this is best practice for medical treatment. And in reference to the sports inclusion, it's you know, I'm, I'm going to quote someone who's in Changing the Game. Would it be fair if from the hours of 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. a child was a girl, but then when it came 3 p.m. and on, she wasn't able to be a girl on the team that aligns with who she is? And, like, if we ask that about going to cello practice or being in a band or going to art class... The only reason that we have these like really uncomfortable, intense feelings is because sport is so physical, but the narrative is always about advantage or dominance in a way that's not true to life. It's just the overrepresentation of stories, which is like something I appreciate us talking about. It's like you can't acknowledge or see the lack if you're not looking for it. And that is the lack of just seeing kids existing and playing sports even badly. Um, I wasn't great at basketball. Um, and that wasn't because I was trans or not. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Because you weren't necessarily a, a, a height qualifier. But even so, I'm better at basketball than my friend who's 6'3". And so, like, even the height is not a determinant of that. <laughs> Sure. I mean, you've got you've got pros that are, you know, smaller in stature that are doing amazing things that you just go, whoa, how did this amazing athlete like get to that level? Um, uh, but let's let's talk about um, stay on board the Leo Baker story, which is, um, you know, also uh, another kind of athletic uh, vein. Uh, how did that come about? Uh, for you and the telling of that story. Yeah. Um, the co-directors 
Nicola Marsh and Retta um, had been working on this documentary for quite a few years. And we actually met pretty early in the process as I was producing Changing the Game. And we had a very, again, difficult conversation. They were bringing to me sort of where Leo was in his journey and what the potential focus of the documentary was going to be. And in that meeting, I sort of said, well, these things that you're telling me, if this film is going to come out in three years, I can say that it's going to enter in a different kind of cultural context, that audiences are going to maybe be looking for something else, both from within the trans community and outside. And this fever pitch about trans people in athletics is also going to be in a different place. So I sort of gave some recommendations and um, they were really in the process, in the trenches filming with Leo um, and they went on their way. And then a few years later, they reached back out and they said, you know, I think we really want to work together with you on figuring out how this story can be the best received in the world and also the most respectful to Leo. So I came on board, <laughs> the Leo ba uh, stay on board, yeah. relatively right, so yeah, late. <laughs> yes. <Right. laughs> um, but had been in conversation with Retta and Nicola throughout the process. And what I appreciated about it, and we've talked about this in interviews, they're very open about the sort of path that we took is that as they were following Leo, the the trajectory of the story all but seemed that he was going to go to the Olympics and compete. But in the process of his own life, he knew that in order to be himself, he didn't want to go through the process of competing because he wanted to take that time to really do what he needed to do for himself. And so in, it's interesting that the film sort of parallels Leo and that the film was set out to be one thing and it turned out to be something else in the same way that Leo's story, you know, everyone was expecting that he would go compete in Tokyo the first time skateboarding was an Olympic sport. And it, he ended up, and no spoiler alert, he doesn't end up doing that. And th th that is such a power in the film that he wins because he chooses himself and that mirrored very much the filmmaking process of like the film started as one thing and with collaborators like myself um, and we brought on an editor, Sasha Perry, um, to work together on crafting this story. It ended up being a story of triumph despite not competing um, or and I think that's a really, again, a powerful showcase that if if you you have to choose between being yourself and doing what you love that's just it's not a choice people should have to make you should be able to do it all you should be able to have yourself shine through and do what you love um it's a shame sometimes you you can't facilitate you know both of those but the trajectory was interesting on how it was paralleled in the storyline and, you know, true, true to life, right? Um, one of your current projects, uh, Chasing, Chasing Amy. Oh, my gosh. We, you know, we got to talk about this because, you know, talk about, you know, Chasing Amy, right? Uh, which is the 
well, you're gonna. I want you to tell 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 people about this. But but you do know chasing. When's the last time you saw chasing Amy? Uh, the the chasing Amy, chasing Amy. Oh my gosh, that's just uh, and the theaters. Who the heck knows? I mean, years ago, right? But it's like stuck through my. It's an iconic film for what it is. Um, in the male dominated teen whatever. I mean, it's a classic for its genre, right? I am so excited to share this with you. Um, so Chasing Chasing Amy is from first time feature director Sav Rogers um, and basically as a queer kid growing up in Kansas, he didn't know queer people existed, let alone queer people could be good um, and funny and out and living and li having full, vibrant lives. And so when he came across the movie Chasing Amy, which premiered in 1997 at Sundance, it was in his mom's VHS collection. He watched it and it became this life-saving piece of media in a way that Boys Don't Cry was for me. And... So that film sustained him for years of like, I can find myself, be myself, even in this place that I'm not interacting with any other queer people that he knew. Um, and he gives a TED talk called The Rom-Com That Saved My Life about Chasing Amy. It goes viral. Kevin Smith, the director of Chasing Amy, comes across it and they develop this friendship and relationship uh, which propels Sav to really do this investigation of Chasing Amy and its complicated, controversial legacy within the LGBTQ community. Because for those who don't know the premise, Alyssa Jones, a lesbian, falls for Ben Affleck's character, whose name is Holden McNeil. And it sort of questions like, well, is she really a lesbian if she's falling for a man? And all these different questions about identity labels. And at, simultaneously at the time, it was, it was pushing boundaries and barriers. That said, what Chasing Chasing Amy is then is Sav going back and talking to all the people who were in the film, including um, Joey Lauren Adams Kevin Smith, the director, Jason Lee, all these people that were in the film, in addition to people who were on the periphery, including Guinevere Turner, who was actually in Chasing Amy um, and put out Go Fish during the same time that Kevin Smith put out Clerks at Sundance. And so it traces the development of and success of Chasing Amy alongside Sav's own coming-of-age story. Um, and it is both this moving, loving story about relationships and friendships and creative collaborators against the backdrop of, can we understand something as having meaning and significance despite its complicated, controversial, um, you know, in some ways problematic nature for what it was? Can we understand it in the context in it, it was introduced and in more personal context for the people that were involved. And there are bombshells that are revealed in the film that I'm really looking forward to people talking about and considering. And um, I just salve Rogers as a filmmaker. This is not going to be the last time you hear about him or see his work. He is really 
um, an amazing storyteller and we're, we're both creative collaborators as well. So, um, I'm just so excited for people to be able to see this work and contend with the way we understand and interact with different stories. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> and to, and to take this as this iconic rom-com that relates directly to him, I, I just have to believe, I haven't seen it, so I just have to believe that um, there's a hysterical line of this, you know, crazy wonking ex experience um, in his life as, as and how this parallels the movie. And it is very uplifting and hopeful, which is something both Sav and I are very interested in storytelling because, again, two kids not growing up in the same place, but needing to cling on to some representation to give us possibilities for the future. Both he and I are really invested in that. And I, I really think that the Chasing Chasing Amy is going to be that for a lot of people and even in some very unexpected ways, which is exciting. Briefly, can you mention, you know, uh, of the distribution where, you know, are you getting close to having this land on a more um, global platform? So the film is has not yet premiered. We have a very exciting world premiere planned um, at a festival that we are just thrilled to be at. But in terms of distribution, we're going to premiere um, and be talking to whoever we can wherever we can. Um, we're talking to some sales agents right now. Um, but ultimately, Sav and I and the team are all about people that are all in for this film. And we're going to see sort of what happens. We have an imagination and a hope for where it lands. I don't know that I want to say that out loud. Uh, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> keep, it, keep it, keep it, keep it, we'll keep, keep it. keep it quiet here. for now. But um we're going to just make a big splash out on the festival circuit because it's also really important for us to go into communities and be talking to people and hearing their experiences. What is the movie that saved their life? And having that opportunity, and no matter what the distribution course is, I think what I have found in my own filmmaking career is there is nothing like going to a film festival where some filmmakers won't travel because they're not the big cities or they're harder to get to. They're, you know, all these barriers. But those audiences, I, I just believe there's never a wasted screening or opportunity, even if one person is sitting in that theater for that screening. They took time out of their day to come focus exclusively on being a part of this story that... I think we're just excited to go out into the world wherever the film is and talk with people, get to know them and hear their personal relationship to this film as a way in to talk about the films, the media that have um, made meaning of their lives. Right. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? I am really looking forward to venturing into narrative films. Um, my favorite genre is the romantic comedy. I am nostalgic for, longing for um, the ones that we saw in the 90s, but maybe with a more modern twist, a little more agency for women, a little more healthy um, courting. Uh, <laughs> but um, 
I my hope is um, to still be at Glad doing this work that I do every day to work with companies and content creators um, as they set out to tell the best stories about the trans community and connecting them with creative collaborators um, that are best matched and fit to go into the room and produce and write and direct. Um, and hopefully in five years, having at least three romantic comedies um, that can be shared with the world. Uh, because as I like to share, Rain Valdez, who's this brilliant trans woman, always says that um, love stories are propaganda for who gets to be loved. And they are. They truly are because they tell us who can be desired, who can, uh, who can be loved, who can be wanted. And so I want to see stories of more diverse characters of desire and interest and love. Because again, going back to what we started with, the stories that we watch tell us who we are and also who the other people in our world are. And the more we see models of what it looks like to love in public, those people that traditionally have not been portrayed in that light, I think is really revolutionary. Well, 20 years ago, I was hustling rom-coms for the LGBT community and getting turned down by the studios. So, um, you know, we, we, we should talk. I'm going to send you something because um, we should we should we should talk. Um, uh, uh, so how does a you know, we have a lot of uh, different levels of filmmakers listening to the podcast, newbie newbies, those that are not. Um, how do they work with GLAD? Can you kind of give an overview on what that process is? Absolutely. Um, so my role at GLAD specifically um, is a lot of content creators come to us with a script that they want reviewed, um, just an extra set of eyes. Sometimes it's for recommendations, for talent to bring on. We watch cuts and clips and provide notes, always from a place of... There are numerous landmines because of the fraught way that the queer community has been traditionally represented, largely by people who aren't queer themselves for the most part. And also we could get into all sorts of things like the Hayes Code. I don't know that we have time for the history lesson, but we basically just review projects with a concern for the community and the audience that they will eventually arrive into. And we always give that uh, information and education from a place of you are the content creators, you are the ultimate deciders and creative decision makers on your project, but we are going to give you all of this information for you to at least, if you're going to step on those landmines, do so intentionally rather than accidentally, because most of the creators that are coming to us do not want to step on those landmines. Because as we've been talking about the queer community right now is in a very dangerous um, and scary world within the United States. We've already seen hundreds of anti-LGBTQ bills introduced across the country um, from banning certain history lessons and education, um, which is affecting more than just the queer community. This is also in reference to the way that um, studies 
of slavery and racism are also being taken out of classrooms. This has to do with criminalizing medically necessary health care for children in regard to trans kids. This is across the board, just very dangerous culture that we're living in for queer people. So the stories that are arriving into the world at GLAD, it is our mission to accelerate acceptance for this community because we know how needed it is. And so it's ultimately also to give some sense of how these stories may be reacted to and or received, not ever from a place of censorship, but collaboration and um, intentionality, I would say. So we, you know, I have emails that I can give you, Leslie, to put on the podcast so that people can reach out as they have projects. But truly, ultimately, it is to make projects the best they can be to authentically and accurately represent this community of which has not always been afforded that privilege and that, I mean, source of dignity and respect. Yeah, no, I, I, and, and it's a, it's a sigh that we've made progress, but there's still, you know, more to do. As I always say, there's more to do. Um, there's always more to do. Uh, what's a bit of advice you can give to young, um, trans, uh, queer filmmakers coming up the ranks that want to tell authentic stories and maybe are finding challenges? I will start with the first part of your question before the challenges part. We all have our individual personal stories which are significant and meaningful to us. And there is a place in the world for those. And at the same time, I would encourage storytellers. And I should preface by saying I am a very audience um, culture aware storyteller. I never want to put something out into the world that is only the story I want to tell. I want audiences and community members to buy in, to be excited about, to feel like this is uh, forwarding or progressing the stories that we see and tell about ourselves and also the culture we live. So in that, just because a story is personal or true to me in my own life, doesn't mean that I feel the need or want to share that necessarily with the world. If I haven't had enough time to reflect on it or think about the consequences and impact it has on audiences outside of myself. So one of the things that I think is really important is know that your story and your stories are sacred. Do not just offer those up without thinking through how valuable they are and the ways that they may be able to be received. Um, there's, there's a lot of life, hopefully, to live. And I think reflection and time to really consider the nuances and the depth and the history and the present of your life experiences is only going to make those stronger. So know that your stories are sacred and save them for the right moments. And then the challenges that we face. I mean, if you believe in a story or you believe in a project, 
try to be involved and continue pushing no matter how large the obstacles and or barriers feel. That was the case with changing the game. We premiered in 2019 at Tribeca and we were on the festival circuit until 2021 hustling, talking to everyone. This story needs to be seen and heard. These kids deserve their stories to be platformed. Also because all the kids in the film wanted their stories to be platformed. Um, but there were a lot of no's. There were a lot of rejections. And I think that's part of the business that we all benefit from just expecting and understanding. And in that comes resilience from the persistence of not uh, of refusing to give up on things you believe i mean as you said there's always more to be done there is always more to be done and so like holding holding on to hope in spite of those challenges is what's gotten me through and i hope that people still keep believing in themselves and what they're doing because there's always hope there's always hope. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on Best in Fest. Uh, you've been listening to Alex Schmitter, um, fabulous um, uh, Best in Fest um, moment. If you want to see the video components, you can look at that on the LaFemme YouTube channel. Uh, make sure um, to pass us along to all your friends on the podcast platforms. We're everywhere. Rate us, uh, love us, and and pass us on. Thank you so much, Alex, for coming on uh, Best in Fest. Shout out if you want to uh, shout out your socials and uh, the contact uh, at GLAD for any filmmakers that want to get in contact. Thank you so much, Leslie, for having me. This is such a dynamic, wonderful conversation and appreciate everything you do for filmmakers, festivals, audience members. It's genuinely appreciated. Um, my social handles are Anderfin everywhere. That's A-N-D-E-R-F-I-N-N. -N. And in order to reach GLAD and get in touch with someone to help with a script that is tackling trans and or non-binary characters, you can reach out at trans at GLAD, that's G-L-A-A-D dot org. Um, and just want to thank you again, Leslie. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. And you've been listening to Alex on Best in Fest.